You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On this week's show, I have an incredibly talented Bitcoin miner, investor, and strategic thinker in Mr. Harry Suddock. During our show, we talk about the current status of the mining industry and how they're dealing with an all-time high hash rate combined with prices that are still significantly down. We cover his thoughts on Bitcoin becoming more mainstream. For instance, we have large cap oil companies like Shell now being the primary sponsor of the Bitcoin Miami conference. We also cover how some mining companies are providing power to the grid during vulnerable blackout periods and his thoughts on the ever-changing policy and legal rules around Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. So with that, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Mr. Harry Suddock. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Back by popular demand. Here's Harry. Man, always great having you on the show, man. It's, it's great to have you back. Appreciate you having me, man. It's, it's, it's always fun to kind of loop back with healthy sort of bit of hindsight and perspective on the roller coaster that was the vast majority of, of last year. It was a roller coaster. But you know what? The amount of hash rate that's coming online right now is crazy. Talk to us. Let's start off right there. What is driving this? Is this what you would have expected a couple months back that we would be seeing such a surge in hash rate right now? I mean, I think the larger story really is sort of the energy side of things. The reason that we're seeing this hash rate come online is, you know, number one, it was, it was bought and paid for. These are the orders that were paid beginning of 22, end of 21, kind of continuing to round into form. The infrastructure projects that are housing these new machines took a long time to build. And I think the folks who are kind of still up and running in this market are going to be able to see it through and, and grow hash rate. But what we've seen in the price of electricity is that it's finally come off and that the combination of, you know, the 30, 40 percent reduction in the price of natural gas and the 20, 30, 40 percent increase in the price of Bitcoin added a lot of breathing room for everybody who was squeezed towards the end of last year. And so, you know, to me, it, it makes sense that we'd see kind of hash rate climbing. I think ASIC inventories remain robust. And so, you know, it's really just about who's able to execute on building out viable rack space. Plus, you, you have more efficient rigs coming online as well. Does that play a factor into some of it? Yeah. For those of you who are used to looking at charts, you know, you get a 200 or a 400 day moving average. And I really think there's sort of a two to four year kind of trailing ASIC efficiency average where those S9s that are running at a you know, hundred joules per terahash start to roll off in a market environment like we saw the back half of last year. And the S19 XPs coming in at 21 watts or joules per terahash, you know, those are rolling onto the front of the average. And so you're seeing kind of this progression down the efficiency curve as a, an industry. So I think that process of rolling off of the lowest efficiency and rolling into the highest efficiency is going to be a you know, big story over the coming under a 12 or 24 months. But the other component to that is, you know, how much more efficient can manufacturers get? Open question. So we may be, you know, we may be flattening to some degree on the efficiency curve. I would say about a quarter ago, things were looking really scary for a lot of the miners 
They were highly levered. The price was down hard and a lot of bankruptcy concerns happening in the space. Does it seem like we're past the bottom of whatever that was? Or is there still plenty of pain left in the space from a mining perspective? I would split your question into kind of two categories. The first is that, do I think that monthly income statements are going to be devastated in the way they were, you know, a quarter ago? I don't think so. I think that the unit economics have significantly improved for most miners, but the capital destruction remains. The reason that there was so much pain was that people raised credit and plowed that into a $100 per terahash machine, then saw that value get crushed 85%. The debt service still remains. The debt service doesn't care that the collateral was repriced down. The squeeze on the business really is in the form of interest and amortization, not in the form of, I don't know, the, the, the network you know, variable. The pain that we've seen is a function of the fact that the whole market was heavily correlated to Bitcoin in unusual and maybe not obvious, not immediately obvious ways. So if you borrowed $100 for an ASIC, you expect that ASIC to generate, at the time it was generating, you know, 40 cents a day in revenue. Now it's generating eight cents a day. And so you're seeing that destruction, both in terms of the productivity of the asset, the value of the asset, and, you know, and the heavens only coming sooner. So you're facing these kind of headwinds. Then you layer on the fact that energy prices doubled or tripled for most floating markets. And that's an enormous squeeze that's going to put, that's going to put unprecedented pressure on any business. And so I think we saw that happen across, you know, much of the mining sector. That was the, the nature of the squeeze. I think we've wrung a lot of that leverage out of the system. And we've seen that in the form of some, you know, highly publicized bankruptcies. We've seen that in the form of some, some M&A activity is my guess. And what I think we're going to see continue though, and that's kind of sitting below the surface is that let's just say you didn't raise debt and you raised equity to do that. The capital destruction remains. You still sold $100 of shares to buy a machine. You only have $15 worth of asset left. This dynamic of correlation between the ASIC and the underlier being Bitcoin, that relationship is going to be a continued kind of weight on cap cables, even if it isn't a weight on income statements. You had mentioned that all this hash power came online. Where geographically is most of the, the new hash power coming online coming from? I think America is still the best place to be plugging in Bitcoin miners. And I think that that's kind of been, that's been the story. I, you know, I think there's some, I've heard some speculative stuff around, you know, it's the only way to kind of export Russian energy during an era of sanctions. I think some Chinese operations are probably back online after, you know, periods of, of being off due to, you know, government oversight. I think South America is a growing Bitcoin environment. But I still think that, you know, capital formation and infrastructure development is happening the fastest in the U.S. Wow. Like 50% of the new hash rate coming online is U.S. based or like ballpark? I don't have the, I don't have the numbers to support a firm data point from the futures orders that we've seen over the last, you know, 18, 24 months. It seems like those were bought by U.S. companies and are getting plugged in at U.S. farms. How about the pools? Right now, Foundry USA makes up about 32%, maybe maybe higher of the hash rate that's mining Bitcoin. 
Then Antpool is at 17.5%, call it roughly. I know it fluctuates quite a bit. Do you find any of this to be a concern that you're having some consolidation on the pools, the mining pools? I don't mean to parse your answer too much, but I think I live at the poles of this. I think on the one hand, the mining pool business is like negative, negative sum, right? So it's a loss leader for a lot of these businesses. I think, you know, and pool likes to sell ASICs. And so they're affiliated with Bitmain. So they like to lose money on the pool. And I think Foundry has a, a broad range of services. And so they like to break even or lose money on the I think, I think it's very, very hard to build a world beating business by running a Bitcoin mining pool. Um, I think that's, you know, it's very hard to lock in a miner. It's very, it's very easy to kind of transfer between them. The, from a, te- from a technical perspective, you know, it's been more for me to move from pool A to pool B. There's very, very low friction and, and low switching costs. I think the market's able to punish a bad actor very quickly if we were to see some emergent centralization risk start to happen at the pool level. That being said, I don't like 30 plus percent of anything happening with any single tender party. In Bitcoin. <laughs> we try to eliminate trusted third parties here. I think that there are, there are technical and market based opportunities for businesses to peel off some of that hash power. I think from a sort of low hanging fruit, I think that, you know, being able to forward sell hash in a different, whether it's derivative contracts or, or structured hedging or whatever. I think that there are going to be more venues that offer more products in exchange for hash rate. Right now, the best place to sell hash is to a pool. There may be another place that wants to buy hash in the future. And so I think that there could be some emergent environments that incentivize miners to spread their compute productivity, you know, into different venues. I also think that, and we don't need to go down the strata V2 rabbit hole today, but I think that there, there are really strong technical reasons to introduce different design criteria to the pool dynamic right now. And forgive me for getting technical, but the way that the pool process works is that the pool builds templates and send us templates. This is all happening very quickly over the internet. But the pool builds a template, sends it to us. We look for a, a block of transactions that satisfies that template. We send it back to them and then they propagate that out to the network. What Stratum V2 would do is it puts the template construction into the miner's hands and the pool basically becomes a hash coordinating layer and a profit a smoothing and distribution layers. It takes some of the, the sort of the onus of transaction inclusion. Right now, the pool takes, the, takes on the onus of transaction inclusion. Stratum V2 would push that burden back onto the individual miner contributing the hash rate, even though you're contributing it to a pool. It puts the transaction inclusion burden to a different sort of seat in the value chain. So I think that's really important because especially after what we just recently saw with this, you would know the name of the pool that mined the one block that basically had one uh, Luxor. So based off of their antics, and basically using all that hash rate to put a sing call it a single transaction into the block, what you're describing is going to push the onus of what transactions are included into the actual rig that would actually find rig. the yeah, block. Group, yeah. group, group of rigs, right? You know, yeah. so think think of the internet structure, right? Right now, the you know, the pool is is taking the like the IP role and then they're the internet provider of the hash. 
And then what we as the miner kind of take on would become almost like it's, it's like adding a VPN to an IP. Every single sort of, you know, nodal relay or endpoint becomes sort of the origin, the origin point for that transaction inclusion. What incentive is going to drive that behavior to be widely adopted across the spectrum? Because it's only um, as good as the, as the incentive structure for it to gravitate that way. The first of the privacy incentive. So right now, the way that um, Stratum V1 functions is it's basically like leaking a bunch of plain text over the internet. And so there's no native encryption to the oh. mining packets. Miners want to be more private or want to have an ability to not sort of leak their, you know, internet behavior all over the place. We have an incentive just to make ourselves more secure with Got Stratum V2. It. It's the you know, same thing with, you know, encrypting email. Yeah, I hadn't heard anything on that. That's really fascinating. And that's exciting because I think that really kind of just fits into the ethos of what we're trying to do here. One other thing that I think that's interesting is you're saying it's a net sum game for the pool itself and that these tangential services or hardware that's associated with the pool is really the value capture for the mining oh, yeah. pool. So think about that. Like if you're becoming a bad actor as a pool and it's so easy for people to switch, you said one hour for people to switch their hash rate to somewhere else. What the real impact is that ancillary high margin high mar I'll put that in air quotes, but where the actual margin, margin. yeah, where the positive (laughs) margins at the impact is that they're not going to sell rigs or they're not going to sell that ancillary service that's, that's associated with the pool. So if anything, it really kind of hardens the incentive structure to not be a bad actor, even though we might be seeing higher percentages than, than anyone would like to see. And I think some of this with like the foundry USA is, is that, is there some type of advantage for U.S. miners to use Foundry USA or what? Explain that to people. I think that it's kind of, te- you know, regulatory capture tale as old as time. Like mm. what Foundry's done is they've invested in significant kind of SOX compliant process and audit controls. All the stuff that if you were to be a you know, U.S. public company, you'd want to be able to point to in a vendor. Well, I think we just saw sort of very publicly, I know Riot left slush. And the reason they did that is because they, you know, number one is that there's a different kind of payout structure at different pools. And number two is just like, it's, it's really, really easy to just get a big soft report from country and be able to say, look, they did all the things. They did it the right way. You're able to calculate every single hash rate share over the entire year and hand it to your accountants and say, this is exactly what we did. This is exactly what we got paid for. And we're adhering to all of the U.S. GAAP compliance standards. Now, when I hear that, I'm thinking, what about a regulatory capture situation where they get so centralized and then you have all these politicians that go in there and say, we mandate that if you're mining in the United States, you have to use this pool. I mean, that's a pretty unconstitutional. We don't see the government picking winners and losers kind of in that one. But you step outside of that from a strategic standpoint. What if it becomes so important, Bitcoin becomes so important that they try to use some type of national security type angle in order to centralize the pool? Yeah, it sounds like a huge incentive for a second company to try to win that government contract with a pool business. Yeah, but that doesn't solve the the issue at hand of the potential political capture or regulatory capture that something like that would impose. Now, I, I know I got it. Like, There's a whole lot of hash rate. You'd have to find a whole lot of blocks. But let's just say that the Foundry USA gets up to a 50%. I'm just trying to troubleshoot and, yeah. and provide like uh, 
worst case possible scenario and like what that might mean as, as we kind of explore the ideas. So, yeah, so I think for, from the mining perspective, the good news is, is that all the miners are, are heavily incentivized for Bitcoin to succeed because they've bought all of these application specific, you know, computers that can only mine Bitcoin effectively. And so anything that's a threat to kind of the long term viability of Bitcoin means that they're not going to ROI their hardware or they're not going to be able to pay their power contract. If there was some sort of fundamental disruption to the revenue engine that powers the mining businesses, I would love to see more pools competing for hash rate or more businesses kind of bolting on. Well, you know, we've seen Binance take a stab at some of this. We've seen, you know, we've seen others take runs at growing Bitcoin pools, you know, sort of in differentiated ways. I think we're going to continue to see innovation there. But I think fundamentally, if you're facing a state actor who's interested in gaining leverage over the over the mining space, I think that the energy side is a lot easier to come in the, than the pool side, just because we can't move our mines. We can easily move our hash rate. Mm. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep with Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Talk to us about FETI, the Fediment pools. What, what is this? Because this is a I brand new article. nothing. So we so know about the same amount. You have to, and you have to educate me as much as this. I know sort of the Fediment process is this charming and minting yeah. thing. That's about as much as I know. Help me help you. I can't really speak too intelligently on it. I just know that there was an article that recently came out that was talking about using some of that technology to collectively work together as a as a federated group in the pooling process. I don't fully grasp how that would be applied relative to the way we see pools operating today, but my inclination is that 
it kind of does away with the business side of it. And it's just this cooperative thing between multiple parties, which would be really exciting if true. And if people are, you know, if there's some experts out there beyond the article that, that's been shared that I saw, feel free to chime in on the comments and, and let us know or, or share some resources. Cause I, I find it to be a really interesting idea and something that would remove what we were talking about earlier, which is just the potential for like a regulatory capture or somebody trying to come in here and control some of these, these mining pools. You had made the comment earlier about the merging of energy and mining. Shell, I think it's Shell, is hosting the Bitcoin conference in in May uh, with Bitcoin Magazine. This is not like some no name company that I mean. This is a global brand that everybody on the planet knows and recognizes, and they are now sponsoring the Bitcoin conference. What does this mean? Why Shell? Like, what do you know about Shell and their how much they're involved in Bitcoin? Like, what's going on here? I'm very hesitant to kind of over. Analyze it. I think right now one of the best asymm- you know, and and this this goes for politicians, this goes for large companies, this goes for sort of everybody. Is that there's a huge asymmetry, and the asymmetry is that Bitcoiners are a rabid either voter base or fan base or customer base, and we're very cheap to capture right now because we've been fighting against people who hate what we work on for so long that anybody who looks like they might like it, we're very innocent and doe eyed and, and and ready to believe. And so I think, do I think that Shell stands to enormously benefit from Bitcoin? Yes. Do I think that everybody stands to enormously benefit from Bitcoin? Yes. And so I think this is them take, you know, a hedged position on Bitcoin as a constructive business line for their activities. I think that sort of to be more specific, I think produce fluid that uh, others have used in immersion environments. They have enormous, you know, energy contract all over the place that uh, could be heavily beneficial. I think they recognize the methane capture opportunity as well. And from a carbon perspective, based on kind of their, their public stance on that, it's an easy way for them to significantly improve their positioning from that point of view. So I think the great news is that Bitcoin represents a really interesting Swiss army knife for their business. And for a pretty low cost, I bet they're able to get a lot of exposure, a lot of education and a lot of credibility in our community by taking a sponsorship role in the conference. That being said, who knows what, what this what this actually looks like or, or what well, they actually want to kind of end up with. Are they actively employing hardware rigs right today? Do you I don't you don't know? Not that I know of. I'd be really surprised if they weren't. I just think it's such a cheap option. Do you think that they would be doing that internally on their own accord, or would they be outsourcing it to some other company? I think there's arguments for doing it both ways. You know, if you told me to be, you know, I woke up in the morning and I was the the shell czar of Bitcoin mining. Oh, yeah. It's a no brainer. I'd be hiring RFP vendors. I'd be looking at people. I'd be hiring people to do stuff. I'd be running tests internally. You don't need a huge budget to get a lot of information at this stage. You know, if you told me here's, you know, here's $20 million, how much can you learn? I'd be able to learn an enormous amount with a budget of that kind of stuff. for shell. That's, that's a really kind of cheap education. What's taking energy so long to figure this out? They don't know. Bitcoin volatility. They don't know. They can't, tol- they they can't tolerate, to tolerate volatility. volatility. They I mean, get it. Like, to be clear, they get what's going on. These are smart people who understand sort of the off taker concept of Bitcoin within the con within the construct of their energy systems. There's two reasons that it's hard, in my opinion. 
The first is the volatility, right? Looking at a megawatt hour, you know, that sell, you know, if, if I push one megawatt hour through S19s, you know, and at the peak, I'm going to generate $400. And at the total bottom, you're generating like between 90 and $110. They don't know how to deal with that type of vol. The other is that the forward curve on power went from like $30 to like $70. $30 versus $400 is like wildly attractive and will get everybody to move. 70 versus 110, not that attractive. The volatility all of a sudden is like, I'm not really getting paid for the risk I'm taking. So what I think I hear you saying is in the past 24 months, they've intellectually started figuring it out and find it really interesting. But the price action and the margin that's really kind of materialized in the past 12 months as they're looking at it and and now can understand it might be the roadblock of why they're not jumping in headfirst into the water. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, you know, they're used to signing. You got to keep in mind, they're used to signing 10, 20, 30 year electricity offtake agreements. And they're used to signing those contracts with a hospital system or a school or <laughs> some car manufacturer. Something that's like, obviously understandable. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and what they're not doing is taking on, you know, they're usually the ones who um, have to manage the commodity risk. Yeah. The input costs. They're not used to their customer being subject to the commodity costs. And so there's complexity in who bears what market risk at what point in sort of the, the business flow chart. And I think that Bitcoin, you know, the Bitcoin mining industry also struggled with that as we looked at how they financed a lot of their capex. So th- this is this is just super early days. So I think if I was going to role play their the way they're thinking about it is like we have to build all this extra infrastructure to potentially handle the the increased demand that would come out of this. And we don't know that you're you're going to always be there. Like if let's say something happened and you guys turn off all your rigs for four months because you're so unprofitable, like we're the ones bearing that. And that's a huge concern for us. That is that really the the perspective and the opportunity costs. Let's say they're looking at a contract with Kroger and a contract with Preston's mining company. They would much rather, you know, they would much rather have Kroger's counterparty risk than yours, I hate to say. Yes. Um, And and so, you know, and so let's just say they sign with you and then you go shuttered for four months. Like you said, everybody who signed that contract is now under the microscope or losing their job. Got it. So the incentive structures are all backward. Their job is to sell power to the lowest risk buyer, not the highest price buyer. Wow. That's really fascinating. Is it just going to take time for them to see the staying power and to see other jurisdictions where this has performed really quite well for them and, and it is a buyer of last resort? I think there's some of that. I also just think that that there's sort of these native opportunities, right? If you look at ERCOT, there's lots of negative hours. Who cares what the price of, of, or volatility of Bitcoin is if I'm reducing an existing cost structure? There's these market structure opportunities that Bitcoin mining is able to kind of insert itself in and and inject itself into the business model where the volatility risk is not a concern. You know, so if I were going to go, you know, build in Texas, I would say, you know, let's say if I were going to do a a flared gas solution, I would say, look, like you guys just have a liability. I'm going to eliminate your liability. You don't care what I'm paying you. All I'm doing is I'm taking something that is negative sum back to zero. And so the risk of Bitcoin's volatility is abstracted away because of the nature of the business solution that you're offering. Same thing with a bunch of these sort of negative price wage ingestion on grid opportunities. SD factor is low. It might only be 10 or 20% of the year, 
that these are viable, but same deal. For those hours, you're not worried about Bitcoin price because it's going from negative $10 a megawatt hour back to zero. You know, maybe there's, there's an opportunity from a plant risk perspective. So power plants don't like getting turned up and turned down. They like to run flat, you know, put, put your, in, your engineering hat back on. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin miners let, let power plants run optimally. And so maybe you're looking at a, you know, maintenance cost of $10 million a year by cycling up and cycling down. It's worth eliminating that cost to give that flatline power to a flexible is, mining company. Is that a significant bill, the cycling cost? I'm not familiar with the... And annual maintenance, preventative maintenance from a cycling perspective versus the flatline perspective can be, can be quite different. You know, think about, you know, think about it from a useful life standpoint. What if you were able to add five oh, yeah. years of useful life to a power plant? Yeah, that's, you know, so the, this is where I think we're able to kind of find common ground for Bitcoin becomes a global mainstay commodity good. Yeah, the reliability. I mean, it would just enhance the reliability of the power production, which whatever that expense structure is, I would imagine you could you could easily save a 10 percent uh, cost from a reliability standpoint or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So Trey Kelly submitted a letter to the TVA recently. Talk to us about what he submitted and, and why he submitted it. Yeah. So this is, you know, putting my, my grid hat on. Trey Kelly is the founder and CEO of the company where I work, um, grid infrastructure. We run uh, some Bitcoin mining facilities in the TVA service territory. They cover seven states. And we submitted a letter to their most recent board meeting. And the nature of that is, is really around the idea of demand response and curtailment. What happened was sort of on, on December 23rd, there was significant system-wide disruption to the TVA power grid. There were outages both at the generation level and the transmission level. And what ended up happening was for the first time in its 90-year history, TVA instituted rolling blackouts. As part of that plan, they called all of their callable load. So they've, they've got programs in the TVA where you can interrupt power. They called on every customer to do that. And then they, even once they did that, there were additional needs for reduction. And they were told, they are the sort of last mile distributors were told, you have to reduce your, your demand. Um, and so what we did at Grid is we engaged in voluntary curtailment. We were able to shut our Bitcoin mine off where we have them there because it's more important for us to give that power back and let households in seven degree weather be able to run their furnaces and support the, you know, the, the household community, the hospitals, the, you know, the types of things where people are involved. Our servers don't need the power during those periods of intense stress. That's got a negative economic impact on our company. We lose, you know, whatever that amount of revenue is while we're shut down, but we take a long view in these types of situations. Um, and it's really important to us that we are good stewards, you know, of the region and a good neighbor and a good, a good member of our community because we believe we want to grow and expand over time. And taking this kind of action, even when it's not sort of economic that day is very economic over the, over the long run. We kind of detailed what we did from a curtailment perspective traded in that letter. And then his call to action was, was twofold. You know, the first is, you know, he believes, um, and we believe that more money for demand response programs is a positive incentive. And so the ability for us to be, you know, to be an economic curtailment load for more of the, of the time is valuable for the overall system and ends up being positive for the overall system. 
And then the second piece is that we need to build more stable baseload generation. That looks like nuclear. That looks like hydroelectric. You know, right now, the TVA system is phenomenal along both of those kind of generation types. They're, I believe they're 59%, 57% of nuclear and hydro. And the most, don't quote me, but I believe that's the most across those two generation types of any grid in the U.S., And we want to see them double down. We think that, you know, rather than trying to bolt on, you know, other generation types, we believe that nuclear in particular is a particularly transformative technology, especially at the the small modular reactor level. Over the coming cycles, we would love to see additional nuclear generation built in the service territory and all over the world. You have a quote. If you believe there's a pending climate crisis and you do not believe in nuclear energy technology, you're anti-human and I no longer know how to relate to you and your merits. <laughs> this is the craziest thing to me to hear an, a vocal environmentalist coming out as anti-nuclear. Yeah. None of the data supports that perspective. At all. And at all. You know, if you look at, at the human life toll, if you look at the quality of the pellets, the price of the power, the costs that get passed back either through externalities or directly, nuclear is singular. Doesn't mean it's the only type of electricity that should get generated, but it means that, you know, the rate at which we've expanded our nuclear fleet is laughably slow. On that, you recently retweeted somebody who said two new nuclear reactors are coming online in Georgia and they're scheduled for later this year. And nobody's talking about it. The reactors are the first new nuclear units built in the United States in more than 30 years. It's a spiritual victory. You didn't write that, but somebody else did that you retweeted. Do you know much about this that's happening in Georgia with these two new plants that are being stood up? And is it something that can be replicated in the rest of the United States? Yeah. Well, first of all, I retweeted our head of market research, uh, Rory Murray. And the situation in Georgia is interesting. So we need to sort of split nuclear reactors into two categories. One is basically what we've been building since the 50s. And those are light water reactors. They are 800 to 1200 megawatts per core. And they're these, you know, if you think of like the Simpsons, that's the, the form factor. There's a whole other generation of nuclear reactors being built that are smaller and sort of less in a different technology as to how you utilize the fission reaction to heat a substance and spin a turbine. In today's age, we have sort of one mechanism, uh, well, I guess two mechanisms by which we generate power. We spin a turbine or we have photovoltaic cells. And 99% of the power we consume is generated from the turbine version of of that. And so what current nuclear fleet does is it heats water and the steam from the water spins the turbine. And that's how the power gets generated fundamentally. These new generations of nuclear reactors take a similar process. Sometimes they use helium, not water, but that's not important. And they take the fission reaction that generates the heat. Spins the reactor, spins the turbine and generates the electricity or, you know, or the process heat, depending on kind of the, the use case for the, the power plant. The smaller reactors can be as small as like 80 megawatts, not 1200 watts. And you can kind of group them together, you know, so rather than the critique to that tweet actually was below, which I thought was a decent one, is that the best critique for the existing nuclear fleet is that every single reactor is its unique snowflake. All the parts are purpose built for that deployment. You know, there's no standardization. There's no manufacturing economies of scale that you achieve. Everyone is, it's all, you know, the, the, I say, I forget the quote exactly, but they were like, it's every nuclear reactor is a, a multi-billion dollar Swiss watch. A piece breaks, 
You need the perfect person who only knows how to add that one gear back in. And, and it's this heavily specialized thing. I think that critique is limited and that sort of on balance, there's a better case for the existing nuclear fleet. I think the current nuclear fleet is, is one of the shining examples of American infrastructure. And it's part of why when we had successful carbon-free base load, that's where it's been generated. And it's been our hydro dams and it's been our nuclear fleet. That being said, it's hard to build more of these things. There are regulatory hurdles and there are manufacturing construction hurdles that face these. And so if you look at why there's been such a gap, I think it's partially political, it's partially regulatory, and it's partially execution. These are coming in over budget and past schedule. And that's been a trend in new reactor development, really sort of since the Volga reactors have been coming online and they're subject to the same critique. The module, you know, the small module reactor piece, it's called modular, not because, not because you're going to move it, but because you get to manufacture it in one place and ship it in. The existing reactors are all built on site. And so these other opportunities are to be able to bring sort of more standard manufacturing processes and more standardization to the designs so that budgets can start to come in line and that timelines can start to get pulled in. Still have political and regulatory headwinds, but let's at least solve the engineering pieces and the construction pieces to the best of our ability. And there are a number of companies that are quite far along the path that we're very excited about that have, you know, they have real, that have really kind of put a, a real stake in the ground Is around there, this technology. Are you seeing any other startups outside of these two in Georgia, in the United States particularly? Yes. If you look to, you know, there's a number, there's a number of projects that are in, in kind of process and, um, I don't want to kind of tread on some NDAs, but if you were to, to look into sort of the, the startup environment around SMRs in the U S there are a number of companies that are, you know, some of them are still startups. Some of them are quite past the startup phase and there are projects that are, that are in progress both here and overseas in this sort of new kind of form factor environment. Wow. That's exciting. Let's go to the home mining. I had a conversation with a gentleman, Michael Schmidt, and he's heating his entire house through immersion mining. He's telling me all about this. And I mean, he literally built all this himself, but has heated his entire house this whole winter with miners. And now I don't know after you expense his CapEx over the life cycle of everything, like whether he's at a break even, but it seems like he's at a, he's basically heating his house for free. When, if at all, is something like this coming to the retail consumer of the household that they can do something like this, that this is a standard HVAC type setup? Is that ever going to happen? And if not, why? I'm hesitant to say it's going to be sort of standard, broad, best practice, just because I don't know if the kind of the efficiency and component parts are kind of convertible fully. I think over time it, it very well could be, but you know, what we've seen is that home mining, similar to the way that, that energy companies kind of need to have a differentiated use case to bring a Bitcoin miner, negative pricing, plant maintenance, you know, those kinds of things. I think home miners need to have a differentiated use case as well, right? the heating pool, heating the house, drying beef jerky. I've seen, I've seen a bunch of different, <laughs> a bunch of different use cases for the basic process heat kind of use case. But the reality is, is that retail power contracts are an, you cannot compete with, yeah. the, with the big boy yeah. on the power contract basis. So you need to be able to have a tomato farm that you want to heat in a greenhouse in the back of your house. And, and this is the best way to do that, which it is. 
I think that we need to see these types of wedded use cases in order to unlock the home mining opportunity. But I expect that trend to continue. You know, people want Bitcoin. People want to be able to get a coin and not pay an exchange a fee. And so this is a great way to do that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. 
That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. It seems like it's a combination of retail energy costs. If you're getting it for 12 cents per kilowatt hour or whatever, you're just priced out combined with Moore's law on the hardware itself for the rig to remain competitive over four to 10 year period of time is really hard as you're competing against, you know, people that are doing this aggressively in a for-profit kind of way seem like really kind of the major roadblocks that might prevent that from ever happening, at least in the next five years. It seems like maybe 10, 15 years from now, maybe that's a thing. I think that running an ASIC is a good thing to do in your Bitcoin education. I think touching it and seeing how it works I was having this conversation last week, but like, I think on the other end of someone's investment, you're always a certain degree, you know, number of degrees of separation away from somebody in the heart. And I think that less degrees of separation between your personal wealth and that hard hat, the better off we, you know, we end up relating to each other. And so calling an electrician, licensed electrician, and having them rewire your garage to be able to handle the 240 volt, you need a PSU that's attached to the miner and sitting with them while they do that and understanding how your house is wired. That's like really worthwhile. Learning how hash rate gets produced from an ASIC and gets contributed to a pool and how you receive Bitcoin in exchange, you know, and touching each step of that process, that's valuable. And, you know, the same way that running a node has value within your Bitcoin sort of life cycle and knowledge. You know, I think running your own hash rate is a valuable and viable thing to do. Do I think it's going to replace, you know, your day job? Likely not. How are you seeing AI right now? Some of the stuff that I'm seeing in, on the AI front, like I was trying to run a relay on, on Noster. I was a train wreck disaster, but I'm taking like the feedback. I'm there like coding in terminal, right? Like, and I, I don't code, like I'm, I have no idea what I'm doing. You do now. So I'm taking these outputs that I'm getting in terminal, which are these really obscure kind of error messages, and I'm interacting with chat GPT. And I mean, it is giving me just insane feedback on what to type in for my next command line. And like, I was absolutely blown away doing this. So when I look at like something really complex, like mining and all the variables that you guys are juggling. Is AI something that you guys are, that you think will be a competitive piece to this to be the best mining company in the space to basically help manage some of this stuff? Is somebody already using AI that you've heard of? Uh, What are some of your thoughts in this area? I think that it's, I'm of two minds. One is, I think we may still be very early and it's not that useful. That's one possibility. The other is that we've been doing everything with pen and paper and Excel just got introduced to the business you know, inclined kind of for the latter that, you know, this is just going to be you know, the same way that I open up an Excel spreadsheet and try to interact with, with a business. I'm going to use chat GPT or, or whatever kind of the, the chat environment du jour is. And that's just going to be part of a kind of standardized workflow. That's sort of one version of like the individual contributors use case. The other is that we have a bunch of miners have a bunch of unique data and proprietary data that gets generated. Feeding that through AI ML type of, you know, iterative learning structures, like that may be its own whole other thing. And then that's a different question. But I think it's all, it's all on the table, right? Like the innovation space has expanded because the tool set has expanded. Therefore, we have an urgent need to explore the business use cases for additional tooling. 
there's companies out there. You were talking earlier about having advantageous energy contracts in place. Say you're getting it for six cents per kilowatt hour, and you're just a company that has nothing to do with Bitcoin, but you have these contracts in place. And maybe in the evening, you're not using any of this energy. Maybe your warehouse or your factory is shut down. What is your message to these entities and the, the leaders of these entities that have such energy contracts in place? What would you say to them? What I would say to them is that Bitcoin is, it's the black hole for your cost structures. How can Bitcoin mining absorb as many cost centers for as many businesses as possible? How can Bitcoin mining eliminate liabilities on sort of the flaring and carbon side? You know, we're here to clean up balance sheets and income statements wherever we can. And so you would tell that person because the person's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good to me, but how would I do that? How would that person go through that? the leader of one of these organizations? It's really hard. I love the question and I love the idea. I think actioning it and executing it is complicated and tricky. And the competitive environment or large scale 24-7 mines versus kind of intermittent slower payback mines, like that competitive space is really tough. One possibility is that we're five years too early. Another possibility is that we're one manufacturer too early where it's just too hard to get it. It's too much specialized labor, right? You can't just hire your electrician and it works. I got it. So how do you execute on it? You know, there may be requests for startup who's building sort of very, very plug and play containerized solutions, competitive price points to just be able to give these businesses opportunity to eliminate a cost center and replace it with a mining profit center that amortizes on on an effective the business model is still tricky as well. You, know, you, you only get, you know, 40, 50% uptime that may be prohibited. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, the sort of the business intelligence layer and the service provider layer needs to mature before these businesses are able to fully utilize their electric contracts. So they need to find a Bitcoin zealot that absolutely loves this stuff and that has experience home mining. Like that's the perfect person to bring in to try to capture this, but to outsource somebody to come in with some containers and whatnot, they're probably not going to be able to be too successful. Because of all their costs it, and, and whatnot. It's complicated. It's hard. It's a big dollar figure. It's very hard to get to the Goldilocks zone without an internal either home miner or serious Bitcoiner. Talk to us about ASICs. American Hoddle asked this question on Noster. He said, is Intel going to be competitive with Chinese ASICs manufacturers? What's your thoughts? Um, all I'm able to kind of publicly comment on is that the specs for the chips that they've released that were made public are competitive specs. But they've got to actually do it. Yeah, I think that the ASIC environment outside of Intel globally is one where we haven't figured out how to integrate. And you'll hear, to me, this is the theme of the whole episode, is that what is Bitcoin correlated and what is sort of Bitcoin orthogonal to price? And I think what we've seen is that when Bitcoin runs up really aggressively, ASICs trade like a Bitcoin derivative. When they come down, they also trade like a levered coin derivative. And so we've seen more volatility in ASIC markets than we have in Bitcoin markets. I think that digesting that dynamic over the last cycle has been the same, you know, to me is the single biggest learning. So how does, from a cycle standpoint, so when you look at the four-year cycle, are a lot of miners thinking in a way where, where they almost like want to hit the resonant frequency of these derivatives? 
they want to step in. They want to be, I would assume, a buyer right now of of rigs. A year and a half ago, they need to they need to go easy. Or is it because the infrastructure takes so long to stand up that that maybe the what we would think is the intuitive cycle of of when to be a buyer is a little off? Walk us through both. some of that. It's both, <laughs> it's both right? Because the what's so tricky is that let's just put ourselves back in sort of the bottom of the market in 2020. We had no idea what was going to happen. Energy was dirt cheap. That was the ultimate time to sign a power deal. Close, not quite the ultimate time to sign a machine deal. Then the machine opportunity kind of emerges more clearly. Everybody was competing for these five-figure, maybe six-figure future orders from Bitmain and MicroBT end of 20, beginning of 21, into 21. Then we see Bitcoin rip and put pours a ton of fuel on the fire. Now there's sort of this putting ourselves back there, like company announces purchase order, Bitcoin goes up, stock goes up. And so there were these sort of correlations between these, these purchases. Nobody cared what the price of purchase was at, right? You could sign a deal at $50 a terahash and on one day and sign a deal at 75 the next day, marker was going to reward you just for signing the deal. The incentive structure for a certain for the pubcos at the time was just to pre-order as much hash as humanly possible and hope the Bitcoin kept going up. Then there became like, you actually had to plug these things in somewhere. And so there was this very long development lag behind the pre-orders and coin came way off at the time. So I think the big learning to me is to always be building infrastructure and to be buying, you know, ASICs sort of opportunistically throughout the cycle and buying efficiencies opportunistically throughout the cycle. Not every ASIC is priced kind of the same way. And, and that's always a function of efficiency. So like, Easy example is like MicroBT versus the Bitmain gear. MicroBT might lag some units of efficiency, but might be priced significantly lower in order to kind of compensate for that gap. How do you quickly understand what your reliability assumption should be for a specific rig? So if a new rig comes out without having three years to five years run on the thing, how do you make that estimate of the reliability? It's really tricky. I think by and large, Bitmain and MicroBT produce good gear at this point. They know what they're doing. We've seen really good kind of test data from the M20 series through the M30, 31. All those units have ran really well through many years. And same deal with the S19 series. The S17 is working off the case for that. But honestly, sort of every generation of the S19 versions have been really strong units. And so I think the sort of the existential like lemon risk for new hardware is significantly lower than it was even two or three years ago. Okay. 10 years from now, describe the grid according to Harry. What do I think will happen or what do I hope will happen? Both. What do I hope will happen is I hope we're generating 10 or 20 times more electricity than we are today. I think that energy abundance is human flourishing. Those two ideas are, are welded together. I think that the use cases for electricity are just sort of emerging. And some of that's electrification and, and battery stuff. And, and some of that is just what type of manufacturing processes are we able to engage in and, and what kind of energy density is required to achieve them. But to me, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to utilize vastly, vastly more electricity than we have today productively for, you know, for humanity. And the way that we do that, you know, obviously we have, you know, a going concern around pollution and environmental constraints. And so how do you generate that? I want an SMR in every town. 
We shouldn't think twice about changing our thermostats. We shouldn't think twice. You know, should, when was the last time you thought about the compute cost of running a Google search? Right. You don't. Yeah. You don't. Same thing. You want to keep your house at 50 degrees in the summer, 100 degrees in the winter. You couldn't think twice. And so we have an opportunity to generate energy where the incremental cost of those types of extreme choices are nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. It should be you're paying whatever, $39.99 a month for your energy subscription, not for your, you know, your 12 cent kilowatt hour. And the way that that kind of happens is with really differentiated buyers with really differentiated manufacturing processes that adjoin that level of kind of more intense generation. I think that high-speed travel and, and access to really sort of, you know, new paradigm energy density opportunities, we shouldn't, that's not a real constraint. And, that's, and a, that's a constraint of will. I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but at the crux of being able to actually do that is two things. It's nuclear and Bitcoin. Would you summarize yes. it that simple? We say all the time that we, our goal is to build the, you know, the infrastructure company at the intersection of energy and Bitcoin. That's the goal. One other thing, because people who are hearing this that maybe have bought into a lot of the too big to fail banking narratives that have been spread through WEF-like organizations would hear your first statement of more energy equals human flourishment and maybe be triggered by that. I know Jeff Booth shares that. I share that opinion, but it's a contrarian take as as much as it's surprising that it's a contrarian take. But I think there's been so much branding and marketing around this idea that energy equals bad that's been propagated in the West. So walk us through just the basics of why that statement, energy go up equals human flourishment, is true and valid. There's sort of the hard examples and the soft examples. The hard examples are hospital per capita, education per capita, food per capita, roads, transportation, access, right, to modern quality of life. That is a function of the number of megawatt hours available to you individually. Pick your rural emerging market environment and ask them, if you were able to have cheap, reliable power, what would you build? And every one of them would say that the first things are food, hospital, school. And then you enter into manufacturing and the, the positive some economic choices that you're able to make once you have access to low cost, reliable power. And to be clear, coal is bad. You do not want to live next to a coal plant. That is negative song. The, you know, the, the radiation and mercury poisoning, all bad. You don't want to live next to that. So how do you do that? You build a nuclear plant instead because that power does not have emissions, does not have pollution, does not have negative externalities. And so you're this is a good example, and, and, and not to be a full on nuclear show, but, but let's run the risk. You want to know who the best marketing for nuclear is? All the people who live near nuclear plants. If you ask them, what is it like to live near a nuclear plant? Aren't you scared all the time? They're like, no. Why? Because my power bill is low. It's quiet. I don't have to deal with any pollution. And they pay an absolute metric ton of property taxes because they require a lot of land to put that thing on. And so they become an economic backbone for the community from a task-based perspective. And they don't introduce any of the standard negative externalities or something like that. Do you want a huge chemical plant near you or do you want a nuclear plant? Easy. You're able to bolster these communities in a really localized, positive some way that ripples across not only sort of the direct impact, but then what are the knock-on Now you've got a lab environment that's more productive. Now you've got entrepreneurs having new ideas and building businesses locally in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. 
you know, the same way that I think that Bitcoin is really a skeleton key for positive sum and entrepreneurship. I think that low cost, high availability energy is another skeleton key for entrepreneurship. And at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is how we improve quality of life. So, Harry, I want to talk about social media real fast and we're going to finish this up. I've got, and I'm not trying to say this for any reason, I'm just showing the contrast. On Noster, which is this new decentralized social media application where there's completely free and open, completely decentralized, I posted just this morning before we had this chat just an hour ago, uh, before we started talking, I'm having a conversation with Harry Suddick. What are your questions? I posted it on Noster. I've got about 20,000 followers over there. And then I also posted it on Twitter. And how many followers do you have on Twitter? 437,000. This contrast is critical. <laughs> okay. So you have, so you have what, eight, no, eight times the followers? Yeah. Yeah. Eight times like the followers yeah. where you would expect five, a network uh, effect of, of conversation. Yeah. No, it's more than that. It's five times four. It's 20 times the followers. Okay. We have four, <laughs> we have like four or five questions on Twitter. And on Noster, I don't even know how many we 25, had. 25, 30. 25, 30 questions within, really an, good. within an hour of, of doing this. And they were all like really high quality questions. And then on Twitter, there's like scam Binance advertisements and people wanting to just scamware everywhere. It's insane. It's totally. So you created a, you just recently created a Noster account. What are your thoughts here in the first couple of days of using it? UX is still buggy. I'm still like kind of stumbling through some navigation stuff, which is probably partially wetware issues and partly probably, you know, software maturity issues, but it's like, it's smart. It's insightful. It just like the quality of thought is just high. And I got into Bitcoin because of Twitter. Basically that was where I kind of got introduced to some of these ideas for the first time. And I think that there's still a lot of high quality people spending a lot of time on Twitter. But like just seeing sort of the A-B test of your question today was crazy, um, was really crazy. And I'm going to be spending more time on Noster and less time on Twitter. I was shocked. And it's so funny because when we connected, that was the first thing you said to me when we connected this call. And it's crazy because just a couple minutes before that, I was looking at the delta of the two and I was like, this is insane. This is like, I don't even know what to say here. Like, I don't know if I'm being shadow banned on Twitter or what, because I'm talking about Bitcoin or like what's causing this, but it's crazy. And it's obvious. It's like undeniable and obvious. Like you look at it, just the two, you sent the two tweets at the same time. The follower differential is massive. You have one outcome in one online social community and you have a totally different online outcome on the other social on that community. The Noster one was probably 45 minutes after the Twitter one that I posted. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I think a little bit of the, when people show up, maybe they're using the Damus app to, to access it. But I think what's, what's throwing some people off is because there's no centralized servers, like if you want to post a profile picture of yourself, you've got to have, you got to host the, the picture. <laughs> so like, I think a lot of people have never hosted anything before and they're just like, uh, how do I put up a profile picture? Like, this is really weird. And some of this stuff is going to be easier. I know, uh, Will, who's programming the Damus app, he's going to start having some of this functionality. That's a little bit easier to self quote unquote, self host things, or he'll host it for you and, and make it easier. But Yeah, no, it is the wild, wild west over there. And the thing that I think is really crazy, I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with this is, is instead of likes, people are now doing quote unquote zaps, 
which are basically Satoshi's Bitcoin. And so like if you put a post up and I like it, I have a a wallet that I've specified in the app, like, hey, pull it from wallet of Satoshi or blue wallet or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I will click. It's right next to the like button. There's this like little lightning bolt and you click the lightning bolt instead of a like. And I can predetermine if I want to send you 100 sats or 500 sats or whatever. So when I click that lightning bolt, you immediately get 100 sats or 500 sats. And so so cool. And so see, see, Bitcoin finally released a token. This is what's crazy, though. Yeah, 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 right. What's crazy is these likes, these zaps are scarce. So from a filtering mechanism, like mm. all the like because I can like something or I can go create a million bots to go like whatever post as many times as I want. But like if somebody's actually sending you scarce saleable energy units, Bitcoin, Satoshi's. Like all of a sudden you're able to filter content and media. And I was just like, I'm looking at it from like, if you're a major like media producer of somebody who's putting out a bunch of content, I mean, you know, I think Kim Kardashian's the absolute worst, but like for somebody who has a massive following, like, could you imagine if you're getting zapped with, with sats instead of likes? Like, I just can't imagine the possible, like the incentive structure for people creating content. It's insane. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. But this is like, to me, this is like the theme that's so exciting is that like Bitcoin room, it's like the, you're able to like finally fight back against the fiat DDoS. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way life. to put it. it. It really is. Like fiat is a fun, is fundamentally just like DDoS in your life all the time in different ways. And what Bitcoin does is it starts to put up spam filters across different fronts of the war. Yeah. And this one's really, this one's really. Well, and, and here's one, one other thing is it's basically a global index of everybody's bank account. Cause if you tie a wallet, like on your Noster account, which it's decentralized, there's no, there's no centralized servers for any of this, right? So you could create a Noster account. You could be in, in you name it country. You tie your decentralized wallet address to it. And now you have a global index of everybody's bank account. Nobody can shut any of this stuff down. Like, I don't know. I'm so bullish on it. I just, I find it just fascinating. Like, it's just, it's as mind blowing. I don't know if it's as mind blowing as Bitcoin, but it's up there for free and open speech. It's crazy. This is what is exciting for me around businesses that are Bitcoin enabled. I think about this all the time about like, there's not that many Bitcoin native businesses. There's yeah, mining. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple other, you know, those are sort of Bitcoin native businesses, but there are an enormous number of Bitcoin enabled businesses and the ability to kind of opt into Bitcoin. You know, I like, I thought a lot about this, just like, what does it mean to get a Bitcoin job? To me, it means to start a business that's able to sell something for a profit and to leverage into Bitcoin access via sale of goods or services. Retain savings in Bitcoin, regardless of what yeah. your what your product or service is. Exactly. Exactly. And and the more that we can kind of think about it in those terms, the more useful Bitcoin will become because the lower friction ways to acquire Bitcoin becomes the higher margin activities. And That's higher right. margin activities means that you're producing value. Uh Harry, I could talk to you all day. I love our conversations. Are you gonna be down in Miami in May? I should, should be. You should. <laughs> I hope you are. Right. I enjoyed I, our chat I, 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 when we were down there. I, I enjoyed it as well. We should do one live and in person one day. I forgot a huge question here. I'm sorry. I've got one more. We've got to do the NFT ordinal stuff on layer one. Your thoughts. My thoughts is that Bitcoiners expressing value on Bitcoin. 
and the fees will automatically solve okay. whatever. Okay. Yeah. And look, not the technical guests for you to have to kind of walk through all the, the history and the mechanics here. But as far as I'm concerned, this is stuff that is largely achievable already. You know, before any of this, this has been available on Bitcoin for a long, long time. I think that the compromise of SegWit introduced bigger box. I think that, you know, if you're angry about ordinals, you should be angry about SegWit. And that was a compromise that had trade-offs. And so this is where we find ourselves. And, you know, the, the witness data that's being utilized for this is probably a better place than on-chain. And if you're upset about, about ordinals, there's lots of ways that you can express your displeasure in a self-sovereign way that doesn't impinge on somebody else's right to use Bitcoin the way they see fit. Alrighty. I got the question in. This is the irony. And when I reached out to Harry about this interview, that was the question I told him. (laughs) I didn't even cover it. Oh my God. All right, Harry. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to meeting in person, hopefully down in Miami in May. And man, what a pleasure. What a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, give people a handoff where they can read more about you or anything else that you want to highlight. The easiest place to connect with me is on Twitter. Harry underscore Sudok, S-U-D-O-C-K. And always happy to talk about mining, about Bitcoin, talk about reverse seer, ribeye. All right. We'll have links to that in the show notes. And Harry, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Preston. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.